It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I'm a hungry man, but I don't want pizza. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And welcome back to another October Forward Thinking episode. Yeah, another, uh, hey, we've been going on this sort of Halloween, creepy, spooky kick. Thought we'd keep it going a little longer. Right, so we've talked about monsters some on the podcast, but we actually wanted to get into yet another monster-related but very scientific topic this time. The resurrection of the dead, because we all love Frankenstein here, right? Frankenstein. Frankenstein. uh, It is, uh, I am unapologetic about the fact that it is one of my favorite novels. Yeah. Some of the, some of the like romantic gothic elements are kind of hokey and it's, all that, but it's, but it's a great story. So and much it really better than has, Dracula. <laughs> yeah. It and, really and the, is. And the prose is beautiful and, yeah. and, and it's very much about our, our, you know, seeking out our creator and, and asking them why we're here. And, and, and also uh, just about the dangers of science and the, and the dangers associated that if we try to take on the responsibility of creating things ourselves and then if we are not 
willing to carry that responsibility after creation. Right. (laughs) The terrible, terrible things that happen afterward. Right. So, in fact, you could look at it not just as a sort of like uh, anti-science scare pamphlet, but as something about taking responsibility for what you've done. Yeah, because you've got to do the nurture after you create the nature. Exactly. Right. Which we advocate all the time on this show. Responsible science. Right. But to bring it back to science and technology... What's at the core of the premise of Frankenstein? Bringing back dead flesh, reanimation of a corpse or of pieces of corpses stitched together, which maybe one's just as good as the other. Is this actually doable in real life? Is this a research area that people have looked into? And could we one day resurrect the dead with science? Well, to go back to the the story that, that serves as the inspiration for this, this podcast, you know, Mary Shelley uh, had talked about uh with her with her uh peers you know this was all bar- a part of trying to create a really good ghost story mm-hmm. and that's the story behind the the writing of frankenstein mm-hmm. and this was a, a a group of of creative types like percy shelley and lord byron and uh, everyone trying to outdo each other with with spooky stories and spooky, one of the scary spooky scary yes as the werewolf bar mitzvah um the the Story goes that she and the others were talking about all sorts of topics like the occult, as well as recent discoveries in science, like galvanic responses, which, you know, the character Victor Frankenstein in the novel has studied. Uh, whether or not that comes into play with the creature creation is kind of a matter of interpretation. Yeah, in the movies, it's almost always showing uh, that Victor Frankenstein animates his creature with the help of lightning or electricity in one form or another. The novel doesn't actually say that, though he is interested in electricity. I think it's a good guess that that's involved in the novel, even though it never explicitly says so, because there's a... A passage where it says Victor studies it in the university, and there's another one where he's inspired by he's looking out the window during a storm and he sees a bolt of lightning obliterate an oak tree, and he's like, "Oh, the power!" Right, and <laughs> and the galvanic response was something that was uh, still fairly like that was that was fresh science. I mean, that was something that was discovered in the late 18th century by Luigi Galvani, who uh, discovered that uh, passing an electric current through muscles would cause the muscles to twitch, even if those muscles were no longer, say, attached to a living thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Creepy. Like frog legs. Um, though that's the that's the, the kind of traditional. Yeah, the typical example. Yeah, yeah, the one that there are illustrations that you can see of the electrodes being touched to uh, a. a <laughs> dismembered frog leg and, and it's twitching around. And it twitches, yeah. So that kind of created the the illusion of reanimation, right? You suddenly have a lifelike movement from something that is lifeless, which kind of brings around the question of, well, if this is an illusion of, of life, is there any way to to regain permanency? Is there a way to make that come back and actually become real life, not an, not just the simulation of life? All right. Well, I think we should transition from the fiction to the facts. Sure. Has anybody in history actually tried to reanimate dead tissue? Is this an experiment that's been performed before? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. Tons. Actually, constantly, really. Right. Well, because, wait, I'm, I mean, beyond just what you're saying about making muscles twitch. Yeah. Like bringing organisms back from the dead. Still, yes. So, <laughs> so here's the thing about people. We die. 
It's something that happens to all of us at some point or another. And so this is, uh, this has become a subject of a lot of interest because it's something we all share in common. Uh, yeah, and it's something that most of us aren't terribly excited about happening. Yeah. Um, you know, for, we, we have been collectively as a, as a species trying to save people and animals from deadly injury and, and death forever. Yeah. I mean, for recorded history as long as it goes back. Um, there are records of resuscitation via clearing the airway and providing artificial breath that go back to, like, the Old Testament and the Babylonian Talmud. Um, but there's no record of it being actually studied scientifically until the 1700s. And and uh, blood circulation's role in the whole process wasn't called into the picture until the late 1800s. I mean, pe- people knew that blood was important, obviously, like like we knew that there was a heart and that it circulated blood. Um, but it was considered like... <laughs> they were just mainly concerned with getting rid of it back then. <laughs> Not too much. <laughs> they were, yeah, well, actually, I suppose so. I mean, they, they considered it like physiologically secondary to, to breathing because they had, they had seen that artificial breath support could restart a heart. Meanwhile, um, those galvanic responses that we mentioned from Frankenstein, I mm-hmm. think that people were playing around with those as well, right? Oh, yeah. No, that's, <laughs> that's something that we see a lot of in the 19th century. And we're talking like the dawn of the 19th century, the 18, the early 1800s, like 1803. Uh, and boy, howdy, if you don't like kind of uh, macabre descriptions, this might be a good time for you to skip ahead a little bit in the episode. Uh, yeah, there's a possibility that you're going to want to skip this episode entirely there's if you're extremely squeamish. Yeah. yeah, But at but any rate... if you are morbidly curious, you're yeah. in for a treat. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're not going to get extremely graphic. No, but, but there, just, there's yeah. just some general concepts. Do warning. That, that even if you're taking it from a high-level perspective, it's hard to get around decapitation. But... <laughs> Starting with uh, Giovanni Aldini, who was the nephew of Luigi Galvani, the man who had discovered this galvanic galvanic response. By the way, did you guys know that when he discovered it, he thought he had discovered uh, a source of electricity that was actually within the animal, not something that he had – because it was a spark that apparently came from a scalpel – that caused the muscle to twitch. So at first he thought he had found something intrinsic in the animal, not something he had applied externally to the animal. Oh, yeah. I think there were a lot of thoughts like that back then, animal magnetism and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, Giovanni Aldini kind of carried on in his uncle's uh, footsteps. He conducted experiments on the body of a man who was formerly known as George Forster, Way back in 1803. Now, Forster was not a nice guy. He had been convicted of murdering his wife and child and sentenced to hang. Uh, he had been a prisoner at Newgate Prison. So he had been hanged. And then uh, Aldini took possession of the body and performed a series of experiments for an audience of physicians and scientists. And depending upon the account you read, it sounds pretty dramatic. Like, <laughs> and, and keep in mind, a lot of these accounts also have probably been... Uh, overly uh, exaggerated? Uh, zealously reported, I would say. Yeah. Um, uh, this was also a very popular, well, maybe not very popular, but a popular pastime around around this era. The renewed interest in medicine and especially in uh, work with, with, with cadavers as yep. medical specimens right. so was so, reaching a, a peak and, you know, people didn't have Netflix, so they right. had to make their own fun. <laughs> so much so that the, the, the medical colleges were sometimes having trouble getting hold of uh, 
of of cadavers. Yeah, yeah. There's the tale of Burke and Hare. Oh who... yeah, Burke and Hare, who were they were famous grave robbers uh, who may also have uh, helped create a couple of corpses of their own in order to sell them to a a medical uh, right. university. Uh, fr- frequently, these corpses were of of people who had been executed for various right. reasons. And then, uh, yeah, it went... I guess it was considered better. And once, yeah. once if the person hadn't been nice, once executions <laughs> had been outlawed, it really kind of dried up the medical research field. But that's another story for another time. Uh, but another example is uh, the chemist Andrew Ure, uh, or Ur. I'm not sure how you say his last name. It's U-R-E. And so I didn't even think to look up how the, the pronunciation of his name. But he wanted to replicate Aldini's experiments. So this happened in 1818, which coincidentally was the same year that Frankenstein was published. Ah. Um, so now according to uh, – I'm going to call him Andrew because there's no way I'm going to ever say his last name correctly. Applying electric current to the face of a cadaver had a pretty ghastly result. Uh, this is a direct quote from one of his papers. Every muscle in his countenance was simultaneously thrown into fearful action, rage, horror, despair, anguish, and ghastly smiles united their hideous expression in the murderer's face. I don't know how you could do all those things simultaneously. Uh, I don't know either. Apparently it's striking. And uh, as a little side note, there's another slightly more famous scientist actually in the circles of, of uh, electrophysiology named Duchenne de Boulogne, who, uh, or de Boulogne, if you, if you prefer, who furthered these sorts of experiments, but he used living subjects. He was trying to study the physiological, uh, movements and structure of musc- muscles. And, um, he would apply electrodes to people's faces and make them make horrible faces without, uh, without their trying to do so. But again, that, that's only tangentially related. <laughs> Okay, but all of this so far is still basically exciting muscle activity with electrical current. What about like really sort of a more robust activation of the dead body? Can you bring back the brain activity? Can you can you bring back someone entirely? Uh, well, back on the medical resuscitation side in 1874, manual cardiac massage, like, you know, open surgery, actually getting in there and and beating a heart with your hands. Um, What was shown to return a heartbeat to a dog by one Moritz Schiff. And then in 1901, the first successful open chest cardiac massage was performed on a human by one Christian Iglesrud. His patient had experienced an anesthesia-induced cardiac arrest, and so this was a this was a pretty huge thing in medicine to to find out that someone whose heart had stopped beating could could be reanimated essentially. Okay, but I, I assume the time scale was short there. Uh, yeah, yeah. He wasn't. I mean, this isn't like a corpse that they had dug up from a graveyard or anything like that. Right. It was a patient that had, yes, been in a hospital, had this thing happen, uh, cardiac arrest, and then was revived. Yeah, that's where this term resuscitation comes in. Sort mm-hmm. of the 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 bringing back after uh, a brief cardiac arrest. Okay, I've got a really weird one I want to talk about. Have you all heard about the Russian physiologist Sergei Brokhonenko? Yeah, yep. yeah. This is the guy who, who in the early 1920s created this kind of life support system that he called the autojector. The autojector. Yeah. This um, was this was basically a mechanical heart and lungs. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it drew. It, he was he was using dogs' heads for this experiment. Supposedly, we we also do want to say that all of this stuff that we're going to say about some of these um early Soviet experiments is in question, just because their Soviet Russia at that time was not really 
dedicated to factual accuracy in its record keeping. <laughs> I will say there are disturbing pictures. Yeah, they I mean they Yeah, have, there's video of this like from later on. You can look this up on YouTube. And another thing is I also feel like we should be skeptical of some of these claims from the uh Soviet science era, especially of this period in the 20s and 30s. On the other hand, I haven't found any evidence of mainstream scientists challenging the validity of Brukhonenko's results. And I've even found what looked like a few instances of his re- research referred to in subsequent publications in peer-reviewed journals like the Annals of Thoracic Surgery. Wow. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so what he did was um, supposedly using using a dog's head. He he would draw the the used the the, the spent the deoxygenated blood out from it using this machine. The machine would then warm and reoxygenate it, and then pump it back into the head mm-hmm. and supposedly this this would animate the head enough to like produce responses based on stimuli yeah so if you watch the video he's got a severed dog head hooked up to the autojector and he can he will like bang a hammer on the table where the head is and the head flinches with the hammer blows. This is awful. I want to go home and hug my dog. I know, right, so I, much. I miss my dog. It's very <laughs> um, um, but but that but the weird Soviet science doesn't stop there. Right, Alexei Kulyabko and Fyodor uh Andreev and I know I I I will butcher names till the day I die and am resuscitated and then die again. But they attempted to reanimate a human corpse back in 1929. And it followed those experiments we had just talked about. In fact, uh, including had, a lot of others, too. I mean, uh, certainly our our buddy Sergey was not the only dude who no, was trying to, no. to work with this kind of stuff at right. that time. And Alexei was uh, one of Sergey's students, essentially. Oh, uh-huh. And he um, they they got hold of a corpse and hooked it up to a bunch of tubes as well. Essentially tried to do a larger version of the dog experiment we were just talking about. And supposedly they were able to get the corpse's heart beating again for 20 or 25 minutes. Uh, and that the corpse had once being resuscitated, which I guess makes the corpse become a person again, uh, the person arguably uh, let out a weird guttural noise from his throat and it panicked one of the uh the assistants who ran from the room and that is pretty much the extent of all the information i can find on that <laughs> particular incident yeah uh again with that story i mean it's interesting that's reported i think we should be a little bit skeptical but yeah i mean we we don't know what happened it could be the air was being forced into the body and that it was exiting through the throat and that the noise was not any sign of consciousness or anything mm-hmm. like that certainly it could have been purely physiological, but we don't know. Uh, in 1930, in the United States, you have Robert E. Cornish, who experimented with bringing back the dead. He started with fox terriers. Uh, he had a group of fox terriers. All of them had the same name, Lazarus. Uh, I see what uh, he did there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he uh, uh, essentially euthanized the dog uh, one at a time, put him on a seesaw. The seesaw essentially was meant to stimulate circulation of the blood. Okay. He also injected them with anticoagulants and epinephrine and had mixed results. Most of the dogs remained very much dead. A couple of them seemed to revive, but had suffered ailments like blindness and brain damage, and they did not live very long. They were declared dead shortly thereafter. 
Um, so uh, this never went much further. It was never successful on a person, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by 1930, Brukhanenko was not done, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. In 1934, he supposedly, again, attempted to revive a man who had hanged himself uh, just three hours previous by hooking him up to this autojector. Um, and supposedly, the, the man woke up enough to stare at the assembled doctor's I quote, as a man in a stupor might do. Uh, this this reanimation, though, only lasted for two minutes because supposedly the doctor switched off the machine. Again, I quote, unbearably horrified at what they had done. There's definitely an ethical question about bringing back someone who has chosen to take their own life. Yeah, yeah. that's a little bit that's a little bit shady right there. We should say where the quotations were from. Oh, uh, right. These are from uh, an excerpt of How to Make a Zombie, the Real Life and Death Science of Reanimation and Mind Control by one Frank Swain. And it, it seems like a pretty rad book overall. Uh, a Salon published this excerpt. And I'm really curious to read this whole thing now. His prose is pretty excellent. Yeah, he describes the reanimation of humans and dog heads with Surprising Gusto. vigor. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but but meanwhile, back on the actually documented medical end of resuscitation, uh, pe- people were were working on restarting a heart um, in in ways that were not quite so invasive. Uh, it, it was still a surgical procedure for the next couple decades, but in the 1950s, we figured out how to do uh, external cardiac massage, aka chest compression, like the sort of thing that you do in CPR, mm-hmm. um, and uh, defibrillation. So those were huge advancements in uh, buying us a little bit more time in order to to bring someone back from the quote unquote dead. Right. Okay, so that's the history. And that gets us up to the point where resuscitation is a thing that commonly happens. I mean, it doesn't happen with the majority of people who go into cardiac arrest. But it does happen sure. fairly mm-hmm. often, especially and fairly under, successfully yeah. Yeah, under hospital conditions, mm-hmm. especially. Yeah. Um, so we've gotten to this point where you might be dead for a few seconds or even a few minutes and be brought back. But how long can can that go on? And from what kinds of states of death? Can we resuscitate people? Uh, right. We, this is getting into a territory where we need to define death. And of course, that's an extremely tricky question that is legally being debated all the time. Yeah. Sure. Uh, death. Well, I mean, you hear this term clinical death. Right. And you would think that clinical death is very definitive, right. that there's got to be a, a, a pretty, you know, like a stable set of rules that clinical death must adhere to in order for it to be clinical death. And for a long time, uh, that was not the case, and in some parts of the world it may still not be. Mm-hmm. Uh, clinically dead essentially means that a doctor has declared a patient dead, and that that's largely up to the doctor. Um, I, I think I've read for a long time that it referred to cardiac arrest. That if the heart had stopped beating and the lungs stopped working, it was considered to be irretrievable and the patient was declared dead. Uh, but yeah, clinical death, really all it means is that a doctor has declared a patient dead. It doesn't necessarily mean anything more than that. And it doesn't necessarily mean the patient could not be resuscitated. Yeah. Uh, it, it all uh, depends upon each individual situation. So uh, then there's also legally dead. You've heard that term before, too. Now, that used to mean someone whose heart and lungs had just stopped working and was considered to be irreversible. Uh, And so essentially it was um, usually something that came from a death certificate that had been uh, signed off by the doctor who was in charge of the patient. So you get declared clinically dead first, then legally dead. 
Uh, in the United States, though, all states and the District of Columbia have adopted the definition from the Uniform Determination of Death Act, which cites whole brain death as actual death. Uh, this is all following all of this research that was put in in the 1950s, which led us to be able to, to bring people back through defibrillation and, and cardiac massage. Yep. So essentially up to the 1950s, death was pretty much the moment when some major function of the body uh, was going to fail. And the three big ones are brain activity, breathing, or uh, heartbeat. And if one of those three were to have a critical failure, they, they stopped working, uh, generally speaking, the patient would uh, very quickly have the other systems follow suit. So, right. But there's kind of a question where if we can resuscitate people after cardiac arrest or mm-hmm. if we can put people on, uh, you know, artificial lungs or ventilation machines or give people a feeding tube and all these other things that come with the modern science of medicine – does that change what the definition of death should be? It kind of changes at least how we talk about it, right? Because let's, you know, mechanical ventilators, a great example. Those, once those started to come along, uh, uh, and they were in development in the early 1900s. You were mentioning some of the early experiments mm-hmm. with them. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and of course, obviously, there's the ancient versions that have been around for quite some time mm-hmm. to varying degrees of success. Um, but mechanical ventilators meant that suddenly if the lungs failed, we could, in theory, put someone on a mechanical ventilator. That might allow them to, um, with assisted breathing, regain uh, function. You could get to a point where they would be able to recover from whatever ailment had sent them into this state of being and that something that you originally would have said, this is a dead person because they cannot breathe, no longer applied. Okay, well then should it be when the heart stops beating? Well, no, because you could also make the heart continue to beat either right, with massage can... like CPR mm-hmm. or mechanically. And possibly restart itself, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and then you've got as long as the the cells themselves haven't died, you can keep on going and you can have people recover. Um, there's so that's, that would be circulatory death, right? right? The idea that your heart has stopped beating. But again, we don't necessarily see that as, uh, uh, an actual point of no return. At this, yeah, not, not anymore. And, and there's some really extreme examples of people surviving, right? Yeah. Uh, for a long time after their heart has stopped. Yeah. There was a, a, uh, a student, uh, Anna Bagenholm, who fell down while she was skiing. She fell onto, a uh, an icy patch on a a stream and her upper body was submerged underneath and she found a a pocket of air but she could not get out of this stream that she had fallen into her friends tried to help her out um and after 40 minutes of her struggling to try and get get back out her heart stopped beating uh and they her friends still couldn't get her out uh finally a rescue team was able to cut her out of the ice and they started administering CPR. They got her to a hospital. They, they didn't cut her out of the ice until 40 minutes after her heart had stopped yeah. beating. So so 40 minutes she's under there struggling. Another 40 minutes after her heart had stopped beating, that's when she's cut out. And from the point where she fell to the point where her heart started beating again, because this is, this is the great part of this story, it took three hours, 55 minutes. Now, that's the point of the time where she fell in and okay. her heart started rebeating. But, but you, they say you subtract 40 minutes from that because it's more than because uh, the first 40 minutes her heart was beating anyway. But. Yeah, I've seen several different reports, but it seems at least for two or three hours her heart was stopped. Yeah. 
So you might say, well, how is that possible? How can somebody have their heart stop that long? Because with the heart stopping, you know, the, the blood that's flowing through our veins, it, it's carrying oxygen to our brains. It's also carrying away toxins and waste. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a multifunctional, uh, uh, system that mm-hmm. is very important for the support of life. So how could someone have their heart stop for more than an hour? more than three hours and then make a recovery and not only make a recovery, but not suffer permanent brain damage and in that recovery period. Well, what I've read is that her survival is chalked up to the fact that she was in an icy stream, which kept her body temperature very low while her heart was in the arrested state. Yeah, she uh, had a temperature, body temperature of 56 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 13 degrees Celsius. That Yeesh. is yeah. quite chilly. Yeah. Uh, and... Here's the thing. You've heard about, you know, oxygen deprivation of the brain, you know, hypoxia and all that kind of thing and about the idea of brain cells dying. Well, a lot of uh, not a lot, but brain cell death can result from oxygen being deprived from the brain and then resupplied. It, it's kind of a, a, a type of shock where the brain gets overwhelmed and cells start to kind of just destroy themselves and you can suffer severe brain damage. Uh, the cooling of the body temperature counteracts this. And so with the cooling of the body temperature combined with the cardiac arrest, it meant that uh, by resupplying in a gradual way the the blood supply and the flow of oxygen, Mm -hmm. that uh, she was able to recover without this uh, reaction of shock, which would have otherwise uh, caused massive brain damage. damage. Yeah. So it's pretty phenomenal. And it's interesting also we should mention that uh, you, when you think of applying CPR, especially when we see it in the movies, you might see someone like pumping maybe 15 times. And then uh, yeah, they, yeah. It's and how, like, however, oh. however long is dramatically – Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then then they're like, oh, we tried so hard. No, you're supposed to keep that up for 38 minutes at At, least. At minimum 38 minutes. You know, most most of the literature I've read is actually they round it up to 40 minutes. I just had a thought for the first time. If you come back from that, I imagine your chest must really hurt. It usually breaks the breastbone. It's it's a it's not anywhere near what it looks like in the movies. But uh, on the other hand, a broken breastbone is way better than dead. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay, so we've established that it's possible, at least in some strange scenarios, to come back after your heart having stopped for a long time. Right. So what actually prevents you from coming back after, say, a day? So, I mean, why can't you go in and give CPR to someone who's been dead for 24 or 48 hours? Well, I mean, it, it'll again, it'll really heavily depend upon the situation because there are really some people who claim that you could go that long. But uh, maybe under some really bizarre circumstances. But, uh, but but under normal circumstances, what you're looking at, the problem, the biggest problem is cellular death. Right. Mm-hmm. So death doesn't just occur at the whole body level. It occurs at every single little cell in your body. Right. There's a there's a straightforward mechanical failure mm-hmm. of the of the parts of the cell. You, uh, you, right. You, right. Because once your blood stops flowing, it stops delivering nutrients and oxygen to, and stops clearing out those toxins. Starts, right. Yeah. Right. Right. And so uh, the way I've read this described is that your cells have little membranes, and without being constantly taken care of by the flow of blood those membranes start to rupture. Right. And, and then once the, that happens, the cell that, basically that's... the parts of it come apart and that can't be repaired. No. Mm-hmm. And the, here's the thing. Cell death is 
completely part of life because our cells are constantly dying oh, and sure. being replaced. Yeah, it's the process of apoptosis. Right. Now, uh, and, and the key part of that is that new cells are replacing the cells that have died off. Right. Mm-hmm. This now, is planned. Right. When you get to a point where you're, you're no longer your circulation's no longer going, then you're not getting these new cells. There's no generation going on. It's just a die-off. And once the cells are dead, there's no way to revive the cell. They they they're destroyed, mm-hmm. right? So they are literally not there anymore. And it is an X cell. Yeah, exactly. His cell has shuffled off the metal coil. It's <laughs> gone to meet the choir invisible. Uh, yeah, the 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 cells also die at different rates. It kind of depends upon the actual tissue. Right. So brain cells can die off very, they're very delicate. Right. They can right. die off pretty quickly under, uh, under normal circumstances. Clearly the ones that, uh, Bagenholm were under, I mean, she, her, with her body temperature so low, those were extraordinary circumstances. Mm-hmm. But under normal circumstances, it only takes a few minutes of deprivation from oxygen for brain cells to start to deteriorate. Sure. Um, and, and so brain death really is the kind of modern standard of what we should consider death to be. Right. Yeah. And this would be brain death where there is no trace of brain activity. We're not talking about limited activity because there, there are people who are in a vegetative state who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are arguments that they are starting to respond to a certain stimulus or that you can track some electrical activity in the brain, that would not qualify for whole brain death as Mm -hmm. defined by that act I had mentioned earlier. But if you're talking about whole brain death, then there's really no coming back from that, uh, at least with our conventional means right now, um, as far as we know. But also there's a, a... an added complication in that people who are in a vegetative state who are, uh, their, their heart is still beating and they're still breathing maybe with, uh, with assistance, but their brain is no longer active. They are ideal candidates for organ harvesting because mm-hmm. they're still alive. Their, their organs are still being Healthy, supplied. Right. Right. So it, they are incredibly valuable medically. So it becomes, that becomes an added consideration and complication in this discussion about resuscitation. And of course, the next of kin's wishes or the family's wishes have to be respected. And and there's there's also, of course, a a very emotional and uh, religious aspect to all of this. Yeah. yeah. But medically speaking, uh, that's what we've got going on right now. Um, But this is a show about the future. So uh, is there is there any new research that that's possibly changing this? Yeah, I I want to know how what's pushing the limits because so we've established a couple of uh, boundaries. I mean, it's common to revive people after a few minutes of cardiac arrest. We we know because of cell death that you're not going to do what Frankenstein did and and dig up corpses that are days old or something like that. Right, and, and make them work again. Yeah, right. That's just not going to happen. It it can't be reversed at that point. Right, There's too much damage. But how far can we push the resuscitation border? How long can you go with somebody who's dead in one of these ways we've mentioned, either uh, brain dead or suffering cardiac arrest or, or any of these different kinds of death and bring them back to a healthy life state? It's it's definitely something that is uh, dependent upon the individual situation and the uh, the capabilities of whatever healthcare providers happen to be uh, near that person. Uh, so if we're talking about a state-of-the-art hospital that is using the latest uh, uh, groundbreaking techniques in resuscitation, 
the the number I saw was a 38% success rate for people who had gone into serious cardiac arrest using in the hospital in the hospital yeah mm-hmm. and it, so this is you know it, clearly i mean if you're in the hospital there's there's something that is wrong medically with you otherwise or you're visiting someone but you know what i mean if you're a patient in a hospital something is medically wrong so you, of course you are in a population where there's a higher percentage of people who could go into cardiac arrest mm-hmm. it makes sense so but in that environment you're also in the the best place for that to happen mm-hmm. because you've got the people who are uh, most qualified to take care of you um it, it it's hard to answer this question mainly because we don't have a uniform set of standards for every single hospital with every single uh, healthcare professional with every single patient case. They're all very particular. However, we have lots of groups that are working very hard to push the resuscitation technology and science as far as possible to give patients the best chance of being resuscitated. And while maybe being dead by one of the earlier definitions aren't dead to the point that they cannot come back. Mm -hmm. So you've got the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, or ILCOR. Uh, they publish a consensus of findings every five years, the most recent being 2010. So we're recording this in 2014. Next year, we should see another publication with the latest. And this is essentially a, an overview of all the different studies on resuscitation with kind of a best practices. And, you know, based upon the science, this is what we think is the best approach for resuscitating people. Uh, you've also got Specific groups. I mean, uh, one of the stories we were looking at today talked about the University of Pennsylvania and their Center for Resuscitation Science, or CRS. And again, this isn't about reanimating the dead. It's resuscitating people who have gone into cardiac arrest or right. stopped breathing. It's about um, the best we can hope to do. Yeah. Uh, at this point, yeah. Okay, so the question for the future is, how far can we push back resuscitation? How right. long can you go? Um like we were saying, I don't think you'll ever get to the point where you can resurrect somebody who, you know, died out in the middle of a field somewhere and you find them hours later. At that point, too much cell death has already set in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tissues are ir- irreparably damaged at the cellular level. It, I was trying to come up with an analogy, and I think it would be like trying to repair gas up and restart a car where all the engine parts are just rusted through with holes. Mm-hmm. Like. Mm-hmm. It, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. The damage is systemic and catastrophic and there's no return. Uh, but what seems like a more plausible future for pushing back the resuscitation window is a future for when you die in hospital conditions. Mm-hmm. And doctors might be able to immediately apply some cell death prevention therapies to your body. Uh, actually, to quote an expert in this field, Dr. Sam Parnia, who's uh, an American expert in death and resuscitation science, He gave an interview to Der Spiegel in July 2013, and he said this. In the future, we will likely get better at reversing death. We may have injectable drugs that slow the process of cell death in the brain and other organs. It is possible that in 20 years we may be able to restore people to life 12 hours or maybe even 24 hours after they have died. You could call that resurrection, if you will, but I still call it resuscitation science. Again, I think it's important that he's making the distinction. Oh, uh, yeah. Because it's important to note this as resuscitation, even if you're talking about something that's a day later, because he's talking about someone who has uh, had measures put in place 
to stall the onset of cell death. And he, he looks at death as a process, not as in an on-off switch. Like, right. it's not yeah. binary. It's not zero or one. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and it might not be just injectable things, too. You could do, you could do this with, uh, with the conditions around the body. Right. We were, you know, you could artificially create the same sort of situation that we talked about with, uh, with, with the, the lady who fell into the the frozen stream. You right. could you could induce therapeutic hypothermia. That's specifically when you are purposefully lowering the body temperature of a patient in order to help prevent that that shock I was talking about, which is called reperfusion injury, uh, which may have been again what saved Bagenholm when she fell into that icy stream. And in fact, some hospitals already do a version of this. Yeah, like they they intentionally lower your body temperature if you go into cardiac arrest while yeah. they're trying to revive you. And I've even seen uh, um, uh, other suggestions. In fact, I think I saw one. Yeah, from from Doctor Parnia himself, who said. That uh, for people who are are responding with CPR, for someone who's gone into cardiac arrest, it's not a bad idea to do something like put a bag of frozen peas on their head to help them oh, wow. bring down their temperature a little bit while you do this. And uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting to think of it kind of like a, a DIY approach until uh, a rescue team can arrive and, and take over. Yeah. But, um, yeah, this is something that we could see used more regularly. In fact, I think Dr. Parnia has said that the reason why we don't see this rolled out more uniformly throughout the the United States and then you know by extension the world is simply that it's it's taking time for this information to diffuse out into the medical community and for oh, to be to be properly tested and right and also the fact that that you have to have multiple specialists looking after a person who has gone through cardiac arrest because mm-hmm. you've got so many systems there, the respiratory system, the circulatory system, the brain. And as we've discussed on this show before, uh, the specialties that we're talking about are so intense. They're so – even a, a specialty is so broad that there's no one who's going to be an expert in multiple ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we're not all going to be Dr. House and Dr. House is a <laughs> fictional right. representation but, you know, uh, I think one thing that's important to note is this idea he's talking about where you might have injectable therapies to prevent cell death is not just a fantasy. There's real research going on in this area, right? Oh, absolutely. There there are lots of therapies that are under investigation for the possible prevention of, of cell death. We could do a whole episode really just on those. Um, and, and we covered it a little bit in our episode on immortality called Who Wants to Live Forever, which published in June of 2013. But, uh, but very briefly... Researchers are looking at different cells, metabolisms of stuff like sugar and oxygen um, and at antibodies and at regulatory enzymes and proteins. Because, all right, the the thing is, is that we we know that cells die because of both necrosis, which is which is damage Mm -hmm. um, and apoptosis, which we mentioned earlier, which is a regulated or programmed cell death, which happens due to normal bodily functions uh, or or it can happen due to stressors and diseases, including like viral infections and neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. Uh, so we know a lot about the mechanisms that can trigger cell death, but not enough to know how to control it. Uh, and, and it's important to remember here that you know, as we look into the future and and as we think about what science might do to to help resuscitate people at later and later times after death, that most of the current research is aimed more at, at treatment of diseases like AIDS and, uh, you know, Alzheimer's, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus also things like cancer in which harmful cells can be targeted for triggered death, which is pretty cool. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess it could certainly lend itself 
to reanimation or, or resuscitation in the future. But right now, it's it's a narrower focus. You know, one of the other things I was thinking, though, is that if we want to get fairly sci-fi with this, you could imagine that if you have, as, as Parnia suggests, injectable drugs that prevent cell death uh, in hospital conditions, one could imagine maybe even some kind of implant or, or a cybernetic enhancement or something that's designed to stall out death wherever you are. So imagine you don't go into cardiac arrest in hospital conditions, but you are out hiking somewhere or something like that. And you have a sensor implanted in your body that says, hey, I just noticed that all of your signals went flat. Are you okay? And if you don't press the cancel button, it injects you immediately with these substances to prevent your cell death. Huh. Could be. We don't know. I guess it would also have to send out some sort of beacon. Well, I would yeah. hope. I would yeah, hope I that say, it would also find be, me. right? <laughs> Otherwise, I'm like, well, I'm still alive, but I'm incapable of moving, and I'm on a mountain. <laughs> yeah. Again, I guess you'd have to put in some really good fail-safes to make sure it doesn't accidentally inject you. Yeah, and, that would be bad times. And we haven't even I – mean, we touched on it on previous episodes. We didn't go into it here because it's not about resurrecting or, or reanimating the dead. But there's right. also the discussion of, of the study of the death – of death from a genetic perspective and the shortening of telomeres and really right. to, to, mm-hmm. to counter aging so that while death would not become uh, impossible, you wouldn't die from quote unquote natural causes. You, mm-hmm. you might still get sick or you might still die due to injury, but you wouldn't age. Yeah. 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 And, and, and check out that, that episode on immortality for yeah. more on that. Yeah. Uh, but but let's let's return to that kind of ultimate sci-fi idea of of cryogenic reanimation. Reanimation. Yeah. Right. So yeah. you're talking about like things from hard sci-fi like Futurama. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> again, in this scenario, you couldn't fix the problem of of natural death discovered too late, right? You, you couldn't go mm-hmm. dig someone up and then one, once you're at that point, cryonics doesn't help you. Right. It's something you have to prepare for. Uh, yeah. Right. But assuming that, you know, they have Walt Disney's body on ice somewhere. Right. Are course. they going to be able to reanimate him? So uh, this is... I can't help but think of the Simpsons. We're looking for the cure for 17 <laughs> stab wounds in the back. You're up to 14. <laughs> um, but no, the, the cryogenic freezing, first of all, uh, it does happen. There are yeah. people who are in uh, cryogenic suspension now. Um, they are all legally dead because it is illegal to do this to someone who has not been proclaimed clinically dead by a doctor and therefore legally dead. Uh, but the idea is to cool the, the body down to sub-zero temperatures, actually very sub-zero temperatures, uh, in order to preserve the, the cells, uh, indefinitely. And, and the hope is that the person will be able to, uh, be revived in the future and whatever it was that led to their demise has been, um, we've learned enough to be able to reverse that as well. You know, I have nothing to base this on, but I just have a little intuition that says doctors must really be annoyed by people who are trying to be cryogenically frozen. I'm like, pretty annoyed by it, so like I if figure. You're, you're sitting there in the room trying to save somebody's life, and then like right over your shoulder, you've got these guys standing there ready to freeze them. <laughs> well, yeah, it's this is like, pretty okay. Hurry up! Yeah. This is pretty crazy stuff. So yeah, if um, let's say that you have elected to be cryogenically frozen upon your death. 
uh, it think they have to act quickly because again, once cellular death starts to set in, there's really no hope of of bringing that person back. Right. Uh, and like the, most people say that even looking a thousand years in the future, there's no coming back from cellular death. Yeah. So you have to be able to preserve the body before that starts. So uh, you have to freeze the body carefully. You can't just dunk a body into liquid nitrogen. It's going to... Right, right. Because right. that, that would... Uh, that would. I mean, you've seen the way that, for example, uh, an ice cube tray will overflow if you put it in the freezer right. too full. Yeah. Or that a soda can will pop if you put it in the freezer. And that's because liquid expands when it's frozen. Yeah, water doesn't, at least. Well, so. right, liquid, I'm sorry. Yeah. Water expands yeah, when it's frozen. So, so you got a lot of water in your body, like your cells, uh-huh. lots of water in them. They freeze, the uh, cells, the water inside the cells expands, the cell membrane Bursts. pops, and then you've got cell death. That's cell death right there. So you can't do it quickly. But what they end up doing is they end up freezing your body slowly. They first have to replace all the water in your cells with a cryoprotectant, which is a chemical mixture that's essentially a non-toxic antifreeze. Wow. So yeah, Ah. that's step one. You think that that's going to be a pretty big one right there. Uh, Then they cool your body down to about minus 202 degrees Fahrenheit or 130 Celsius. Minus 130, I should say. Not plus 130. That would be insane. Then you'd be placed in a tank filled with liquid nitrogen and cooled to a further minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 196 Celsius. Uh, You'd be stored upside down because if the tank were to spring a leak, they want to protect your brain as long as possible. So you'll be upside down. Uh, So you're like a big frozen bat sickle. You're like a six pack because you're in there with other people because <laughs> space is a premium. So there are chances that you're going to be in that same tank with lots of other folks. So you're going to be making friends. Wow. Uh, frozen buddies. You'll be like two frozen peas in a pod. And uh, yeah, you'll be upside down until they figure out they're able to bring you back if they ever are. And we don't know that we can because right now we so, don't have the technology to actually return someone from this frozen state to a normal temperature where they could even in theory be revived, even if we knew how to cure whatever it was that caused them to die in the first place. It's for people who have a lot of hope in the future. Yeah, this is where you're... you're and a lot of money. Yeah, this yeah. is where you're placing a bet that in the future we will have figured this out enough to reverse this process and bring someone back so that they can be resuscitated. It's kind of like the people who say like, ah, global warming, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Technology will fix it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is, uh, not, this would not be the, the basket into which I would place all of my eggs. Um, this is, uh, one of those things where it, it, I mean, it is like futures where you're, yeah. you, you buy, you buy something thinking about in the future, it's going to be worth something. So I'm going to pay for it now. I think I'd rather throw in on, uh, investing in that, that injector implant thing I talked about. The, the completely hypothetical injector implant thing that you... completely hypothetical thing. As opposed to the actual thing that's happening, but the <laughs> hypothetical way of resuscitating someone afterward. Right. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's not to say that this won't ever become uh, a, a possible, you know, working approach, but we don't uh, have sure, any... Sure, yeah. We don't, it's, yeah, there's nothing that we have right now that would say right so. Right now, it's kind of an entertaining cultural artifact, I think. Um, but but I, it does, I mean, like Joe was saying, and, and we've been a little bit snarky about it, but I do think it's genuinely beautiful that, that people have this this faith in the future and yeah, and, no, and in in science to cure future science to cure all ills i'm a very optimistic person and i really very much like to see uh the the 
optimism come out in other ways. And I certainly hope that it unfolds in a way that is best for everybody, obviously. And uh, I mean, in the meantime, we're using this uh, similar technologies, not going down to the temperatures we're talking about with cryogenic freezing, but similar similar technologies to put people into what has been called suspended animation as a means of helping resuscitate them. In fact, you probably have heard that there was a breakthrough in suspended animation in 2014, and everyone thought, oh, is this supposed to be for space flight? And no, the answer was that it was not for space flight. It was specifically for patients who were undergoing uh, traumatic, medical, yeah, right. like medical trauma, and it was meant to help stabilize them so that doctors would be able to repair Prolong, whatever damage. Right. Yeah. 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 So uh, now that doesn't mean that we won't one day figure out a way of doing suspended animation. Obviously, that would be a huge boon for space exploration, um, especially if you just wanted to be able to go to sleep and wake up on Mars. That'd be fantastic. Or maybe not Mars, maybe a planet on a different, you know, system entirely. All right. So, in yeah. summary, uh, in the future, will we ever be able to bring back corpses like Dr. Frankenstein? No. Almost certainly no. not. Probably. <laughs> I really no. can't see how that could happen in no. any way, no matter how good technology gets. Which is too bad, because Marty Feldman would be my number one. That would be the first person i go to. But can we bring people back after longer and longer periods of cardiac arrest? I think that seems very plausible. We can, oh, cer- yeah. we can certainly bring people back from the dead as we had defined dead in previous generations. Yeah. Right. We can do that. And, um, and, and hopefully, yeah, right, you use these technologies to prolong life and to help beat some of these diseases that we don't really have any kind of other cure for right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's one of those things that uh, we were so interested in tackling because – I mean, we're all horror and science fiction fans. People can argue, but uh, I think Frankenstein of I think of it as the first science fiction novel. And um, I, I'm really excited uh, by these kind of topics. I think that it's fun for us to take something that's a little outside the norm for us. We've done it a few times with our What You Don't See in Science Fiction series. So if there are any other futuristic kind of topics that are, you know, off the beaten path, it's not maybe something that we would normally cover in an episode, but you really would like to hear our take on it, let us know. We would be eager to hear from you. Mm -hmm. You can drop us a line. You can send us an email at fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. Twitter and Google Plus, we have the handle FW Thinking. Just search FW Thinking in Facebook's search bar. will pop right up. We look forward to hearing from you, and you'll hear from us again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.